welcome to New Life Preaching Podcast, where we stream our sermons from each Lord's Day. In this series, entitled The Household of God, we begin our study of the first epistle of Peter, where he seeks to encourage Christians who are scattered among pagan nations. Join us each Lord's Day so that you don't miss a single sermon. We're just continuing our study on this household of God, but what's really been been beneficial is whenever we stick with a book like this and we walk through the Scriptures, and even whenever we come to special occasions, it often forces us to consider different applications. We're, We're celebrating, a lot of us in a special way, the resurrection of Christ which for us is something that regularly characterizes our our ministry and our worship. And yet there are some dynamics of those regular meditations throughout the week that have brought to life the text from which we're reading this morning. And so we're just picking up in our study, but I think that it's quite interesting uh, what we will learn about in approaching the end that that is what the title is of our message this morning is approaching the end first peter 4 i'll be reading from verses 7 through 11 if you have had a chance to turn there in your copy of god's word i welcome you to stand so that we can honor the reading of it first peter chapter 4 beginning in verse 7 But the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Lord, we come to you by the blood and in the name of Jesus Christ. Father, we seek to glorify you as we read from your word and we study and we see you revealed in this holy word. And Lord, we seek for you to take dominion within this church. Lord, that by your word, the people here would take dominion in the world for the glory of the name of Jesus Christ. And so Lord, it's only with your help that we might do this. So bless this hour. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.
Last week, if you were here, you'll remember Peter, he continued using what was war-like language. It was language of battle. This morning, we're confronted with a passage, and it says, the end of all things is at hand. It's kind of a daunting message, it seems. The end of things is at hand. That should give us a seriousness or a sense of urgency, especially when attached to that warlike language, arming yourself uh, with the mind of Christ or reaching back even to um, doing away with this sin that wages war against our souls earlier in the letter. The end of things, of all things, is at hand. So if you're following the outline in the back of the bulletin, I'm providing the fill in the blanks for you, the end of all things. This is one topic that is very helpful to think of in light of the resurrection and the events that led up to it. Surely they were aware that the end of all things was at hand. This really drives home in a number of ways. You see, as Jews, the apostles recognized that they were certainly at the end of an era. This was the one that they sat with and who preached. And they knew this was the Son of God. Even His own enemies at the crucifixion looked up and said, surely this is the Son of God. Surely this is that King that was prophesied over the Jews. The hour of fulfillment is at hand is what Christ regularly preached to His apostles in the Gospel of John. It was the end of an era. So as Christ came to fulfill all of these things, there, there are things of that old covenant that were clearly going to be done away with. He was the one that in the face of persecution, some apostles said, where else will we go? You have the words of life. It was through them that that the message came when John asked, are you the Christ? Are you the one that was prophesied about? And, and Jesus answered him and said, tell him. Tell him all of those things of the Old Testament are being fulfilled. The lame walk, the blind see. They knew the end was at hand. And then here at the crucifixion, they're confronted with a hard reality, or a question rather, was now this kingdom coming to an end? Had their religion failed them? As they watched this man who seemed to fulfill all of these prophecies and they watched him with their own eyes be tortured and be put to death and closed in a grave. And so they're confronted with this 
not knowing the resurrection that would soon occur. And yet, the resurrection, it doesn't tell us that there's just something great new that has started. So often young Christians ask themselves in light of uh, what has been called Good Friday, what would drive Christians to call something so dark so good? Well, we know the answer to that. We know what Christ accomplishes. We know how He expiates our sin. We know the way that He becomes the propitiation uh, in, in deferring the wrath of God Himself, the substitution for that punishment. We know the way that, that He reconciles us to God, the way that He conquers death. And in the resurrection, He even reconciles Himself. But you see, uh, that, that's what makes Good Friday so good is that it is the inauguration. It's the beginning of something very good. And yet, we find that the coming of this resurrection on that glorious day, there's no resolve of that awe. Sigh of relief. It was just something good. We thought it was bad, but it was something good really. It was. And yet when we recount some of the events that those, those apostles that were on the road to Emmaus when they unwittingly encountered the risen Christ, it wasn't the way they took it. Their response to, to this man who they encountered was, are you the only one who doesn't know what's happened? There was a man that came and he fulfilled all of this. He spoke and he taught greatly. He performed many miracles. We knew for certain he was the Messiah. Then he was put to death. You're the only one in Judea that doesn't know this. What's more is there's some of our company. They're saying he's raised from the dead. Resurrection has occurred. Surely the end of all things is at hand. The resurrection drives home the fact that the end is here. It is at hand. We exist in these last days. Those prophecies of the Messiah and of the Christ were about this bringing about, this culmination of this kingdom of God. And so when we preach in light of the resurrection, it will never and should never carry the connotation that Christ will not return in our day. It is a problem if you ever hear a pastor say that your children will likely not encounter the return of the Lord. No one in Scripture ever preaches that way. That is blatantly false. Peter himself is preaching to us after the resurrection. It's after these events, and yet you don't see any lack of urgency in his message. It's important to him to preach to all of the Christians scattered abroad, the end is at hand. It is here. It is upon you. What that means, Christian, is not that God is slow in His coming, not that He is slow in His justice or in His judgment, but that every day that you wake, it is a matter of God's long-suffering. 
Why has he waited on you, Christian? Is God gracious enough to wait upon the salvation of my grandchildren? Whose names are written in that book of life? I know the end is at hand. The word tells us that. If you say, oh, it's not. You don't know this. The end is not near as you say it is. That is false and it is contrary to this word of God. So the resurrection drives this home and then in light of this war language we've read about, arm yourselves with this mind of Christ, uh, war against this sin that wages war against your souls. You understand this end or this coming of Christ that we're waiting upon. If we, uh, When we think of the end, which is interesting because we know we go on into eternity, we know there's a transition of events and of obligations and of actions so the end isn't the end in the ultimate sense of things, and yet it is what we as Christians refer to as the end. And yet that coming of Christ, it doesn't point to some questionable outcome of an inconsequential battle. When we talk about war, it's not a, a, a tug of war or a push and a shove act of war that Peter is conveying. His language points to an hour of siege. Where it is up. You see, when God appoints these things and these hours of His coming, it is, it is never in question. There is none who will stand against. There's no one who could thwart His will or who could change His mind or to pull Him back. We see historically He's done that. He's held them back by fire. He's met armies. He's, over, he's overturned massive armies without an act of war from the people of Israel. Bringing confusion. Stopping water or bringing waves or, or, or whatever it is he does. And sometimes he overtakes them with laughably small armies of opposition in Israel. No, when the hour comes, it's a matter of siege. It's more like the event when he commanded Israel not to fight, but to march around Jericho and then finally give a blast where their walls would fall and they would forfeit. The only thing that is left here is to be found for or against. To be battling with the armies of God or be battling against them. He is laying siege. And there's none who will be left. There's none who are neutral. There are no standers by. There are none left to surrender. The end is at hand. He tells them to be sober-minded and watchful for the sake of your prayers. You see, I'm not one to endorse or promote anything out of Hollywood, and yet I'm reminded of these interesting, I think, helpful words of Aragorn. If we got any Lord of 
Lord of the Rings fans in the house. But the enemies laid at the gates. They pressed in upon the city and the cowardly king Theoden. He rebutted. He rebutted the advice of his counsels and he said, I would not risk open war. And the both wise and brave Aragorn responded with these words, open war is upon you whether you would risk it or not. Christian, open war is upon you. The end is at hand, Peter says. It is here. You don't have the option. This means that the Christian doesn't get to say tomorrow, I will make ready. The Christian doesn't get to say, tomorrow I will disciple my children. The Christian doesn't say that that we'll do this thing for a year and bring about success. The the Christian doesn't say uh, certain things. We're not tied up entirely with vision casting in the church in the sense that, that we're going to build some earthly ministry. No, we are preaching a heavenly kingdom. And the hour is at hand. So what do you do? What is it that the Christian is called to do? Peter tells us, he says, watch be so reminded above all things, love one another. This is the word, have abundant, have fervent charity or love. Loving one another is a priority. So if all of this is true, if it is an hour or an act of war, if the hour is here at hand, how petty are so many of our arguments? And the reason they're petty is not because they're unimportant. The reason is because you're no longer an individual. For one, woe to the man who thinks that he is some super soldier of Christ who can storm in a cowboy on his own and bring about the kingdom. But we who are not a people are a collective. You have been saved into the body of Christ. You are only acting in this way, sober-minded and in accord with this this war of God and this kingdom of God if you are part of His people and of His army. So we don't hold, whenever we're given these commandments like this, these imperatives by Peter to love one another or to do these works that are so important, it's not as if you're to obey that yourself as if it's from a motivation of a haughty spirit or some righteousness of your own. As if he's telling you, listen, Christian, the hour's at hand. I sure hope you measure up. That's not what he's saying. He's not giving you a command in that way. Instead, it's from a humble realization that we ourselves are at this mercy of God's own grace. Of His own choosing and equipping for battle. 
We've talked about this. It is, it is His armor. It is His Word. It is His Son who is the captain of that army. So we too, we ourselves are at His mercy. And so we come in and we, we love one another because we know we need Him. We're just like the ones who are His enemies apart from this life-giving Spirit He's given. And what's more is we love because we are members of one body. We're no longer left in isolation, but we're called together as a people. You see, He says this, you've been saved, and now in this moment, in this hour of war, at this time near the end, there's preparation to be done. You're a people in that hour who need love. You're a people who need sharpening. You need one another. You are the body of Christ. This is why it's not contradictory when James says you're saved in these good works. Or whenever Paul says in Ephesians that you're saved unto good works which God prepared for you beforehand that you should walk in them. There is a whole culture among the people of God that involves love, sober-mindedness, self-control, sharpening one another, service to one another. We function like a well-oiled machine. It involves loving one another. How ludicrous to think that you're on your own. You do your thing and I'll do mine. Or I've got my own way or my own Christianity. There is nothing like that in this Bible. There is a new life, a new spirit, a new will. It's in all of us and it is the same Lord and the same Spirit and the same Christ in which we've all been called. You don't get your own. You don't get your own Jesus and I don't get my own Jesus. Especially for us as we're preparing already our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. I love what our brother and pastor Sam Waldron said. I, I saw something he said this week. He said the Lord's Supper is a constant reminder that just as salvation is not merely a past one-time event, it is also not merely a private or a personal affair. Why is it that in the ordinances that Christ gives, He tells you to confess your sins before men, and He also tells you to that when you gather in communion at that supper to remember Him. Because that Lord's Supper is never taken by yourself. It's taken in communion. Communion with the entire body of Christ Himself included. It's rubbish. There's churches who practice this taking communion by yourself at home. In my view, that's borderline heretical if it's not. 
heretical. It diminishes this work of Christ who has called you into the body of Christ, who's made you one with Himself, in Himself, with all believers. So you're not on your own. You're not left to isolation. If you are called to action, how will you do it? Now I want you to pay special attention to this. It tells us to use this hospitality not with grumbling or, or without grudging one another. As every man has received the gift. As everyone has received a gift. And he says, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Some translations put that of the varied grace of God. We know we're not all one and the same. We don't have the same strengths. We don't have the same weaknesses. Which makes us really fit. Makes us really fit to have brothers and sisters who can help us to examine those beams in our own eye that we can address the splinter in our brother or sister's eyes and constantly be in help of one another. Use the gifts of God's varied or manifold grace. Now I want to say something. God does not use the naturally gifted. Let me qualify that. It's true. God uses all things for His own glory. Amen? God uses the vessels for honor. He uses vessels for dishonor. And, 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 and every good gift comes from above. So if someone's naturally gifted, then they certainly do have God to thank for that. But when we're talking about fulfilling this, this eternal plan of redemption, when we see God enacting His special will, when He's going about revealing Himself, God does not wait upon those He will naturally gift to do something for Him. God gifts supernaturally. We don't look on the merely naturally gifted. And this is a problem because so often we're told, you know, it's true. Whatever you do, do it unto the glory of God. That's true. But we have so minimized the work of God to say, well, if you're a good football player, play football unto the glory of God. That's your calling. We must have forgotten or failed to read the Scriptures when God uses the one who is slow of speech, like Moses, to preach His Word before Pharaoh in order, in order to free His people who had been incarcerated for 400 years. Do you not find it ironic that He only one-upped Himself that whenever He spoke at first to the very first prophet of the New Testament, Zechariah was silent. 
after 400 years of silence where God didn't speak by prophet, he spoke and he struck the man silent so that he could only offer his message through silence. God often uses the younger to lead the older. Uses the outcast. He uses the afflicted. He uses the lesser. What about when he uses the feeble, not not the oldest, most mature, tallest, strongest, best looking son of Jesse, but the feeble, youngest, grim, absent shepherd boy, David. To overthrow Israel's army's biggest enemy. He was unlike his predecessor in almost every way. God thins the strength of Gideon's army. He puts to shame the strength of men. He is not waiting upon the naturally gifted. Listen to what he says here. He doesn't say to the one who speaks, speak boldly. He says... If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. You're handling, you're called to handle divine things. Not really good things. Holy things. The one who speaks as divine oracles of God. If any man ministers or serves, he doesn't tell him to do it with all his strength. He says to do it is with the ability or the strength that God gives. Don't you understand? When you serve, it's beyond. It's not to the point of exhaustion. It's beyond the point of your exhaustion. To the one who serves well, and they, maybe you've heard it. Surely you're exhausted. How do you do these things? The response to the Christian is it's not just me. You serve with the strength that is not yours. And you speak with a wisdom that is not yours. That pretty much summarizes everyone here. You're either a speaker. Everyone here is either a speaker or a servant or are both. None of you are neither. There's no one here. God doesn't call or set apart or save people that He says, you're not going to be my servant and you're not going to speak for my glory. It doesn't happen. You speak and or you serve. And you do it beyond your wisdom, and beyond your point of exhaustion. Do it according to the strength that God gives. I hope that that is a great encouragement to each of us here. And there's one last point that we cannot overlook or we would have lost 
he would have lost it all. He says, the one who speaks, let him speak as oracles of God. Men serves, do it as for the strength which God gives, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So to our triune God belong glory and dominion. After learning all of this, after hearing Peter's words through all of this, it is for our God's glory that we fight. It is for God's glory that we endure and go beyond our own uh, patience and beyond our own strength and beyond our own endurance. It is for God's glory that we love. It's for God's glory that we preach, that we serve. The resurrection has changed everything, all of life included. Now listen, when we apply all of this and we wrap all of this up with this warlike language, and I want to borrow or rely upon some of that language in Ephesians 6, 10 through the end of the chapter, and that armor of God, what this means is that our belt of truth will never fall loose. It means our breastplate of righteousness will never tarnish. It means our feet will never grow weary of sharing that gospel of peace. It means that our shield will always shine and wax strong against the enemy darts. It means that our helmet of salvation is never lost. It means that our sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Paul said, it never grows dull and we always will have the strength to grip it tightly until we see the full victory in Christ at His return. This is what we receive in the resurrection. Even death is not enough. And so we greet it willingly now, suffering all things for Christ. The hour, the end is at hand. It's what we receive in the resurrection and for that we owe Him all the glory, all of the honor and the praise and the dominion. So God in Christ has conquered and He makes us, He makes you more than conquerors in Him, Romans says. He achieves His dominion in the Son and yet He causes us to have dominion in His name. Christ is raised, Christian. He is living. The end is at hand. These days are the last days. This era is the end of times. When you study your theology or your eschatology. So if we ascribe to God the kingdom and the glory and His will to be done, take back, take back your homes. Take back your wives, your marriages, your children. Take your children back. And give God the glory and the dominion that is due Him. Listen, there's a quote that I saw I've included for you, and it's by an abolitionist against abortion. His name, I believe, was Kevin Myers. You may have seen it. 
But he gives such wisdom. He said, I would rather be called a fool for Christ than to be called a fool by Christ. Praise God for the wisdom that it doesn't belong to him. Praise God when men like him speak with a wisdom that is like the oracles of God. Praise men for those who serve in the homes with strength that can only be given by God. That's what it looks like for God to have his dominion. It's the commission when we preach the gospel, all authority, all of that authority and dominion was given to him. Go therefore. You see, all that we do is on this dominion, this authority, this conquering kingdom work of our living and breathing Savior in Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we come to You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this wisdom and this strength that You offer. The willing subjects, the unworthy subjects such as ourselves. Lord, we pray that You give us the sense of urgency that this gospel of Jesus would be proclaimed in our homes, to our families, our loved ones, our friends, our co-workers, our communities, those who hate us and despise Your name, that we would proclaim the glories of Your excellent grace before all men. Lord, make us alive. Let our life become abundant with the truths that we have just heard from our brother, Peter. Lord, that you would become all in all, have the power and the glory and the kingdom forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Life Preaching Podcast. Subscribe so you don't miss a single sermon. We invite you to our Lord's Day gathering at New Life Baptist Church Hallsville where we meet and worship 10.30 a.m. each Lord's Day.